Fellow fabricators, happy December. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, stone shop owners from across the fruited plain and beyond, this is the Fab Lab Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Crowley. Tuning in with you for episode 153, Economic Storm Stories, Mistakes That I've Made. Uh, fellow fabricators, in 2008, I entered a five-year period of pretty much business hell that I was utterly unprepared for. It was a storm of epic proportions. And I'm sharing this with you today, not because I think there's going to be a repeat of that, but I think there's some parallels. And I think what I experienced there by sharing it might give you some time because the storm hasn't hit yet. It gives you some time to prepare. Now, what do storms have to do with this? Why the metaphor? What, what's, what's with that? Well, I love to sail. A couple of things about that that I think make a nice object lesson for us to enter into this discussion about these mistakes and how you might use those mistakes that I made to hopefully prepare your business in the event that there is a downturn. And I, I think there's at least a chance of that. I hope it doesn't happen. And I really don't believe that there's going to be a severe downturn. But things could get dicey and the companies that are prepared are going to do okay. Those that are caught off guard uh, may not. Uh, many companies did not survive the 2008-2012 Great Recession. I barely survived it, and I'm going to share the mistakes that I made that <laughs> that lent to that situation. But back to the sailing metaphor. So I got a couple of books on my bookshelf, Storm Tactics by Lynn and Larry Party, an iconic book on preparing for storms and surviving storms at sea, like surviving a hurricane in a small sailboat. Handling Storms, probably my favorite storm book by Hal Roth. Both of those are all about preparation. How do you prepare beforehand? Now, sailors know, and I'm learning to sail. My goal is to sail from Oregon to Hawaii by the time I'm 50, and so I'm I'm planning. I'm preparing. I'm reading a lot of stuff. I'm doing as much sailing as I can, but sailors that are listening to this will know this, and for those that don't, anybody going offshore is watching for what's called a weather window. You're looking for that opportunity where the forecast lends itself to the most ideal conditions and the most likely scenario that you won't run into a storm. Because if you can be patient, you and many, many sailors sail their entire lives and never wind up in a true storm, a true dangerous storm like the one I'm about to describe. And so by watching weather windows, you can largely avoid that possibility. But you still want to prepare because you can't guarantee it. Weather forecasts aren't always perfect. Um, and some people don't prepare, and they still manage to get across the oceans just by sheer luck and watching the weather windows. The worst case scenario is to not be prepared and run into a storm, as was the case in 1979. It's a famous, famous account of a race, the Fastnet race, which goes on to this day. But in 1979... Weather forecast was phenomenal. I think there were about 75 teams in their epic racing sailboats. These are world-class sailors all met in the south of England. They sail across the coast. They sail west towards Ireland. They go around the Fastnet Rock. There's a big rock. It's kind of an island with a um, lighthouse on it. And they sail back to either England or France, depending on the year. Well, the weather forecast was fantastic. All of these world-class sailors set off on this race. Little aside, Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, <laughs> the largest boat, he actually won that race. His boat was so big and so fast, he got back to the finish line before the storm even hit. But for the rest of those sailors, thinking it was going to be a great, epic race, were caught unprepared by a massive, massive, massive sort of once-in-a-lifetime storm that nobody saw coming. I think 19 sailors lost their lives, five of those sailboats sunk, 15 or 20 of them were completely capsized or rolled entirely. Many of them were dismasted. 
It's the worst sailing disaster in yacht racing history. It's still studied to this day because it was such a massively negative and, and huge tragedy. They study it to this day to try and figure out how to make sailors and sailing safer as a result. Well, the problem was they weren't expecting that storm. The forecast was bright and rosy. It's going to be great weather, and people were caught unprepared. Even these world-class sailors were lulled into complacency, and they were caught unprepared, and 19 of them lost their lives. So what's the parallel here? Well, here's the parallel. In 2007, we were having the absolute greatest year of my company's history. I'd been in business for nine years at that point. At the very end of the year, October, I'll never forget. I was in Las Vegas speaking at a stone industry event, and we were having the biggest month of our company's history. And I remember this because we started the month completely booked, and then we got this huge job. It was a restaurant, uh, a Red Robin restaurant, this huge Dakota mahogany job, laminated 3CM bullnose everywhere, and that was like the icing on the cake. In October of 2007, biggest year in my company's history. And I remember being down in Las Vegas, and my estimator was on a call with our sales team. And she was telling me that it's, something's odd, something's off. It just Things don't feel right. And I remember just reassuring her and the rest of the crew, don't worry about it. God, we're having the best month of our entire company's history. What could possibly go wrong? Things looked rosy. Things had been great. Years of conse- you know, consecutive increase in sales and profit. What could possibly go wrong? Nobody saw it coming. And then November came, and it was like a light switch. And we lost more money than I, it was unimaginable how much money we lost in November. That storm hit us so fast with no warning. We went from the most sales and the most profit to one of the worst losses we'd ever had in a single month. And it happened in one month. And that continued for five straight months. And so what I'm going to share with you today are the three mistakes I made in responding to that economic storm in the hopes that you have a little bit of time. The storm hasn't hit. If there's going to be a storm, I don't think it's going to be very severe, but there's definitely time to prepare. So I'm going to share the three biggest mistakes that I made. And I made so many mistakes responding to that. I could probably write a book just on the mistakes. I think I invented a whole new category of mistakes responding to the Great Recession. But the ones I'm going to share today, number one, I didn't know my numbers. Number two, I did too much hoping and not enough cost cutting. And number three, I had too much debt. I made some huge mistakes. Now, before we get into that, I want to mention a word from our sponsor, No Lift Install System. My my recommendation is don't make the mistake thinking that your installers can install forever. As our sales director likes to say at No Lift, the stone always wins. Eventually, the cumulative effect of all of those countertops are gonna are gonna add up on your installers, and one day. You're going to get a worker's comp claim. One day, you're going to lose one of your best installers. Don't make the mistake of thinking or believing, number one, that they can do it forever because they can't. And number two, don't make the mistake of thinking that even if they do go away, even if you lose that highly skilled installer, I'll just replace them. You can't. Not in this market. Don't make that mistake, fellow fabricator. If you don't have a no-lift install system already, over 1,700 fab shops do have them here in the United States, and I would recommend that you go to noliftsystem.com and check them out. Reach out to the team. They'll set you up, and you can prepare for that physical storm that your installers are going to face every day when they head out to put those countertops in. So visit noliftsystem.com. Now back to these three mistakes that I made. 
These are actually all classifications, categories of mistakes that I made, but I'm just going to touch on them briefly. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about how to plan effectively within each of these three mistakes that I made, things that you can actively do. Today, I'm just going to share the mistakes and the consequences. Next week, we're going to talk about how to leverage those into actions that you can take right now to prepare, just to be prepared. A storm may not come. Great. Your business will be better off for it. But if it does, you're going to survive it. And like I said, Many, many companies, I know multiple companies that did not make it through the last Great Recession. So number one, I didn't know the numbers. Now, we had had uninterrupted profit for nine consecutive years. I didn't know what it meant to lose money. And in one month, we went from our biggest month ever to losing massively. And that continued for five straight months. I was a member of Young Entrepreneurs Organization, YEO at the time. I think it's just called EO now. And in March of 2008, I had to do a presentation to the group. And since I had been losing money for five straight months, I thought, well, what better topic? And I called it the profit analysis. And I did a deep dive into the finances of my business. Unlike one, I had, unlike anything I'd ever done before. I never had had to. There was so much work and there was so much margin in spite of our ignorance, which we you know, basically patted ourselves on the back for the results. It was factors outside of our control that were just unique. There was so much work and the margins were so high and our costs were still so low because it was such a brand new industry. We made money in spite of our ignorance until things turned. The sales volume declined and then the prices got really competitive. So we had that double dynamic going on and all of a sudden I lost money for five straight months and I did not know why and I did not know what to do. I didn't know my numbers. I had been operating off of a square foot to profit metric. And it had worked up until the point it didn't work anymore. As long as we had this square foot, as long as we hit that number, it always translated into a profit in the P&L. It was like clockwork until it didn't work anymore, until the sales volume dropped and until the work that we were doing, was we were doing it at a lower margin because pricing had gotten so competitive. And so all of a sudden, I was doing the square feet but I wasn't getting the profit. In fact, it was the exact opposite. We were massive. We were hemorrhaging. We were bleeding out cash. It was absolutely astonishing. And so after five months, I began to wrap my arms around this dynamic. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know I've talked about the daily dollar demand. Well, that is where I learned the daily dollar demand, that it wasn't a matter of how many square feet went through the company. It was two things. It was how many dollars we generated in a month relative to the costs that we had. And up to that point, I didn't have enough grasp of my numbers internally to manage the business. I didn't know how to forecast. I didn't know how to plan. I didn't know how to, I didn't know where to reduce cost. And as a result, we continued to lose money. And it wasn't until I started to wrap my arms around this daily dollar demand concept and begin to, to compare that to my cost, my overhead, my rent, my management, and then my labor. It wasn't until I got to that point that we could actually start getting the business into a place where it was at least not losing as much money. But unfortunately, the sales continued to decline. Over the course of two years, our sales volume was cut in half. And so it was just a basically a two-year downward spiral of sales. So we were constantly, we'd just get our costs in line and the sales would continue to slide and then we'd be losing money again. And that went on for two years. We went from 24 employees down to nine, and we were doing about half the volume we were doing in two years. At the end of 2009, we were doing half the volume we had been doing at the end of 2007, which leads me to the second mistake that I made. The first mistake, I didn't know the numbers. 
I didn't know the metrics. I didn't know the correlation and the relationship between the revenue that we generated, the sales minus the material cost, the contribution dollars that could go to actually operating the business relative to the cost that we had. I didn't know the interplay between those two numbers, and we lost we lost six figures, multiple six figures we lost over those two years, folks, because I didn't know the numbers. So number two, in addition to that, the mistake that I made was hoping instead of cutting. Now, what was happening, I was getting my financial statements about three weeks into the month following the previous month that the financial statements were accounting for, only to realize, wow, last month we lost our rear ends again. And oh, great, we're three weeks into this month with the same numbers, which means we're probably going to get killed in this month too. Now, what I was doing, instead of cutting costs to get them in line with the sales that we have, I had this pie-in-the-sky, ignoramus perspective that instead of cutting costs, I'll spend money. In addition to the money we're losing, I'll take the money that I have been saving the previous nine years when we were profitable, and I will invest that in sales staff and advertising. And what we will do is we will somehow defy this worldwide cataclysmic event where declines were happening everywhere across the spectrum, and we'll somehow figure out how to reverse the decline and we'll grow our sales. I did that for two years, folks. We bled so much money hoping. So in in that hope, because we were investing in sales when sales were in a free fall, we were investing in activity to try and correct that and reverse it. I didn't want, here was my calculus. Here was the mistake that I was making. Well, if sales turn around next month, that's where the hope came in. If sales turn around next month, if I cut my costs this month, I won't have any staff to do the work that comes back next month. And I did that month after month, quarter after quarter, year, you know, two years in a row. What I should have done, the mistake that I made, was not understanding that there was nothing we could do to arrest the decline in sales. The market had collapsed across the board. We had been told, hey, when building slows down, remodeling takes off, we thought, great, we were a remodeling-focused company, doing retail as well. Well, building collapsed, and so did remodel. And so did the retail, because everybody's homes were underwater, and nobody had any equity in their house, and nobody wanted to put any money into them. And so it was just a unique period of time where there was just there was no possible way. You couldn't buy the work. There wasn't enough of it out there. And yet I spent that money hoping we could turn the sales around. And my desire for that was so that I didn't have to lay people off. Now, the consequence of that hope versus cost cutting was that in the end, I had to lay the people off anyway because eventually the money ran out. I spent all the money, multiple six figures, folks. And then on top of that, I borrowed about 140 grand against an unsecured line of credit that I had, that I had never used. I'd had that line of credit for years, never touched it, never needed to. We'd been so profitable until the storm hit. And it was sustained. It continued. It did not relent. It just got worse and worse and worse, and sales declined. And so that second mistake that I made was was huge, I hoped that we could arrest the sales, and as, as, as a result, I kept my staff on too long. In the event that the sales did reverse, we'd have the staff to take advantage of it. What I needed to do was cut costs, was to get our expenses in line with the declining sales and ruthlessly cut costs. Because in the end, like I said, I only delayed the inevitable at tremendous expense. Which leads me to the third mistake that I made, <laughs> mentioning that line of credit. A fantastic quote from Warren Buffett here. It's only when the tide goes out that you learn who has been swimming naked. (laughs) Now, what does that mean? 
Well, what it means is, is you can be highly leveraged and you can be deep in debt like I was in 2008, end of 2007, going into 2008, and everything's hunky-dory. It looks great. It was very profitable. It was a cash cow. It was amazing how much money that thing threw off at that time. But my debt was leveraged right up until our high watermark of our sales. Okay, as long as the sales are there. But guess what? The lenders don't care if your sales decline, which is what began to happen. And all of a sudden, the equation no longer balanced. As our sales continued to slide, those payments became a bigger and bigger and bigger chunk of our revenue. And it was an absolute killer. So there were two aspects of this debt going into the Great Recession with too much debt. That was the mistake that I made. And fellow fabricators, you may find yourself in that position right now. And this is an uncomfortable topic to discuss. It's not to cast blame or or to pull a Dave Ramsey and beat anybody up for having debt. It is not that at all. It is to simply share with you the mistake that I made in retrospect so that you may be able to have time to make some adjustments to your business in the event that an economic storm hits our industry and sales decline. Because when they decline, those payments stay the same. And I had two different types of payments, if you will. I had all my equipment and vehicle payments. And then I had that unsecured line of credit. And those just absolutely consumed the revenue that we were trying to generate, we were working like we were just frantic, exhausted, working, trying to keep our costs down, but generate enough dollars to keep the thing going and make the payments on those pieces of equipment that we had. We had a Pro Edge, a Yukon, a Northwood CNC, and a crane. I was making equipment payments on all those, plus a water clarifier. That was the fifth piece of equipment. Then I had three pickup trucks, a van. And I think a couple of cars, a sales car, and then my my company car. So five or six vehicles, we were making payments on all of those. Worked out great when we had the sales. Not so great when we didn't have the sales. And so let me share a couple of thoughts about that. From a P&L standpoint, if you are running financial statements, you need to understand this. I didn't really understand this at the time. We were, and they were very good books. We had a very, very good bookkeeper who was doing a very good job of showing exactly how much money we were losing and occasionally breaking even. (coughs) Excuse me. One of the consequences of a gap financials, generally accepted accounting principles, is that when you have equipment payments, your income statement or your profit and loss statement, the only expense out of that payment that shows up on the P&L is the interest on one of those loans or all of those loans. So you may have a payment of, let's just say, $4,500, like was the case on my CNC. At the beginning, it's all interest, but as that loan matures, more of its principal. So you've got the interest expense on your P&L which is subtracted from your income, which shows you your operating income. What it doesn't show is that you still have to make the principal payment. You don't get to deduct the principal. That's just accounting reality. So even when we would show, hey, we broke even this month on paper, that was not the case because we still had all the principal payments on all those pieces of equipment and all those vehicles that we had to make. And at the time, folks, the principal payments that I was making, not the interest because the interest was on the P&L and we were paying for that, off the P&L, principal payments we were making on our equipment and vehicles was over $12,000 a month. So if the P&L said we broke even, yay, no, not yay. There was still a $12,000 net loss in terms of cash. So when we lost $20,000, the net effect was actually we lost $32,000 from a cash standpoint. And so 
Unfortunately, when sales decline, you don't get to go back to the lender and say, hey, can we adjust this relative to my sales? They're like, no, we want to get paid, which leads me to the other loan that I had, the unsecured line of credit. Now, I had resisted a line of credit for years, and I finally relented. The gal at the bank was like, you got to have this just in case, rainy day. She probably said, in case a storm comes. I finally got the line of credit for two or three years, never tapped it one single solitary time. Never touched it, didn't need to. We were making too much money until this downturn hit and we started losing money hand over fist. And so the first thing I did in my (laughs) brilliance is I ran that $140,000 line of credit to the limit. And when that ran out, I started spending my own cash, which was fine. The bank had plenty of other problems without looking at my business and the problem and the fact that I couldn't make any of those payments on that line of credit. It's a revolving line. You're supposed to pay it. It goes up and you pay it down. It goes up, you pay it down. As long as you stay within your covenant, you're fine. Well, I had escaped notice until 2010. So we're out of the worst of it. Things were kind of stabilizing in 2010. I get a call from the bank. Aaron, we need to meet. Okay. The banker comes down. We meet in the showroom. We sit down in the couches in the showroom there. And he's like, well, got bad news for you. I'm like, Okay, I, that's all I've had for the last two years. What, what could you possibly tell me that I haven't heard already? Well, turns out federal regulators, because of all of the collapse of the financial system, the new regulations that had been passed, the laws in Congress, they basically required all these small regional banks, like the one we banked with, to pull all of their unsecured lines of credit, which means, and if you go back and read the fine print in an unsecured line of credit, they can do this. I found out after the fact. And he said, so we are required by law to demand that you pay us back our $140,000. And if you'll recall, I had already borrowed the one hundred and forty, and then I spent all the money that I had saved. I didn't have any money. And it was at that point that I had to actually start getting serious about cost cutting. So we were at the absolute most exposed, most risk. I didn't have the money. In the following 18 months, I can tell you that we, we barely survived the downturn. We were hanging on by our fingernails when it was all over. And, and, and there were times I was like, I wish we had just gone out of business because it was so hard. Because once we survived, then we had to claw out of the hole. But I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that 18 months at that bank, they absolutely, they didn't torture me physically. But they put the screws to me in in, 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 the, in the what is that 2010? So 12 years since I have never experienced anything in business at that level of stress. What they were threatening to do to me personally: take my house, take my bank accounts, my personal bank accounts, sweep my personal accounts because we banked personally with the same bank because we had we were all in with them. The strain of that was unimaginable, and I didn't have a backup bank. And so when I got into that situation, we the, the financial situation that we had was was horrendous. And so we tried going to other banks to figure out how we could get some other borrowed money to like to, to satisfy my existing bank as they were demanding we pay that unsecured line off. And no one would do it. And it took us it took us until the middle of 2011, 18 months of working like not only did I have to make all my equipment payments, They put the screws to me making payments on that unsecured line of credit. It was absolute hell, fellow fabricator. I am telling you, it was absolute hell. The mistake that I made was being too over-leveraged. I was over-leveraged. Number one, I had too much debt. Number two, I had not held any cash in reserve. I didn't hold anything back. I ran the business as far as I could until all the money was gone. And at that point, I I had no margin left. 
I had no resources left to fall back on. And so I had no hope but to go to other banks. They're like, uh, no, <laughs> You're, this is a terrible risk. Eventually, after a year and a half of working to the bone, we, 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 we had a couple of basically a year and a half of good performance and I found a bank and we'd paid so much of that loan down. In the meantime, I found another bank that was like, yeah, we'll come in and help you out. They helped us refinance some of our equipment, which alleviated the strain, reduced those payments, extended them out. It was a godsend. Absolute, uh, un, unimaginable gift <laughs> that, uh, that the banker's name was Colin. I'm not going to mention his last name, but man, he, he saved our bacon. But the stress in the meantime was unimaginable. And had we had much more debt, I don't know that we would have made it. And so the lesson here, fellow fabricator, the mistake that I made was being over leveraged, being leveraged right to the hilt. And I think there's probably a fair number of companies that may be in that situation because times have been so good. And that's the problem. It lulls us into the sense that the good times are going to continue. And so as the sales continue to grow, you got to buy more equipment. You got to invest. You got to borrow more money to keep up with demand. The risk, fellow fabricator, stone shop owner, and it's not to be, you know, to create terror or fear. It's just a, a sober-minded assessment of where are you at. Right now, you have time to prepare for a storm. I did not. It caught me completely off guard. Now, looking back, what I would have gone and done, number number one, I wouldn't have spent all my own cash. <laughs> well, if you back up from that, I would have cut costs sooner and not spent all my cash on advertising and salespeople. I would have saved some of that. Then I would have went out and got another bank. I, while times were good, had I been smart, I would have had a backup lender waiting in the wings as a basically a plan B, an ace up my sleeve. I didn't have that. I didn't think I needed it. And so fellow fabricators, having cash in the bank to cover those payments if you're over leveraged, holding on to cash, super important. Having a backup plan, having an alternative source of funding in the event that your current lenders get skittish, some regulation comes down the pike and they pull your unsecured line of credit without any warning. Fellow fabricator, that was the mistake I made. And the reason I wanted to share that with you is just because <laughs> right now times are still good. There is time to prepare. You know, if you look out across the horizon and you see dark clouds and it's coming your way, that gives you time to prepare. Reef the sail, put your foul weather gear on, batten down the hatches as it were, and get ready. Position your boat in such a way that you are ready for the storm to use the tactics that you have been preparing to use in the event that that storm hits. You'll weather it. You'll survive it. You'll come out the other side and ultimately get to your destination. But if you're just blindly, ah, I don't need to prepare. Things will work out. Tooling along might work out, but it may not. So fellow fabricator, those are the three mistakes. Well, the three biggest mistakes that I made. Number one, I didn't know my numbers. Number two, I did more hoping than cost cutting. And number three, I had too much debt and I had no backup. So fellow fabricators, I hope that that finds you well on this happy December 1st. And I hope that you'll tune in for the next episode of the Fab Lab podcast because I'm going to go basically part two and talk about how to plan in those three areas. How do you assess the numbers? What numbers do you need to know? Number one. Number two, how do you put a cost-cutting plan in place? How do you use your daily dollar demand to create a contingency plan? And if then strategy to say, if our sales hit this point, if our revenue, if our daily dollar demand hits this consistently, then we've got to cut costs at this level to get our cost in line with the sales. And number three, I wouldn't take on any more debt. 
And I would start looking at ways of reducing the debt that you've got and making contingency plans in the event that things get dicey and your lenders get nervous, fellow fabricators. So make sure you tune in next week for the Fab Lab podcast. We will continue this conversation hoping, praying that there isn't a downturn, hoping and praying that this weather window continues that it continues to be great business climate and we can just keep on trucking along, making money. But in the event that we're surprised, those that are prepared are going to weather the storm and those that aren't may not. So fellow fabricator, I look forward to tuning in with you next week. Until then, happy fabricating.